Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital. We're a registered investment advisory firm committed to helping clients grow and manage generational wealth. We do this by focusing on integrity, competency, and transparency each and every day. No matter where you find yourself on the investing journey, our hope is that these conversations, stories, and interviews can empower and equip all investors with fresh insight and perspective on the capital markets. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Well, it's great to be with you all today. We are back, and I'm joined by Mr. George Colmia, who has spent nearly 40 years in the business, which is why we have titled this episode, Changes Impacting Investors Over the Past 40 Years. George was kind enough to go through and jot down about 10 10 things, 10 events, 10 items that have really affected investors and investing during his time in the business. As our most tenured advisor here at Full Cell, we really value George's opinion and his ability to see the changes. He'll talk a little bit about the changes that he himself had to face, the decisions he made over the course of his career. We're going to jump right in here and get started. But George, I appreciate you being with me and thank you for doing this. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to do it. Where would you like to start? I guess, do you want to tee it up a little bit? How you found these? What what, what kind of gave yeah, you the idea here? I think I'll tee it up because uh, to do these, I, I did find 10. I had to call on my able assistant, Bard, to do that. And that's in keeping with the times. I mean, if you, I've always read now that we have to be using AI to help us. And so Bard helped me with this. That is amazing. I love that. And uh, as I looked at it, here's what we came up with together. Okay that there's really been 10 areas that I see that have been significantly changed over the last 40 years. Number one, technology has changed everything. Okay. Globalization, now we're all one big world. Right. Deregulation, that's led to different ways of doing business, which led to new different strategies. The importance of emerging markets, international stocks, the crises we've had to face over the last 40 years. And we've had some doozies. And a few. Now the impact that environmental, social, and governance investing has oh, had for right. some people. Right. The increase in passive investing, I'm a testament to that. Sure. The regulatory changes that's come about, the demographic changes that we're all having to face, there's just 10 items there that we came up with that I think have had some significant challenges for investors to deal with. Absolutely. So we could probably spend an episode on probably two at a time, but we're going to do our best here as uh, a likelihood we might break this up into two, uh, two different episodes. But let's start at the top. Technological advances, I think, is such a, I mean, it, th- where do you want to start there? There's been so many. But, well, but back me up to when you got into the business and let's set the stage a little bit of it was what, awesome. what technology you had at the, at the time. It was awesome. And, and the year in which you started was? In, in 1983. Okay. I got licensed. And so my first day of work was in September of 83. And then speak of the difference. I was at Merrill Lynch. We used to joke that it's like the army, great place to start. And they had a mechanical ticker tape. It was mechanical. So there were people in our office, old time stockbrokers that traded based on the sound of the ticker tape. The faster it moved, the more activity there was, the more volume going on. So they would use that as a trading tool. Uh, But you would rely on newspapers. You'd rely on word of mouth, (laughs) <laughs> I've got burned the most by hot tips. And I mean, people would always do try to think they were trading on something They'd special. they call you and, George, I've, I've got one for you today. That's I've right. Got one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Don't tell me what it is. Just tell me how much you want to buy or sell. That's all I want to know. But, you know, newspapers and things like that were, sure. for information would show up a day later. Right. 
there were people that would study the stock pages of the newspaper uh, and on Saturdays to see what stocks did that week. So that was so different. And back then, we calculated returns by hand. I had about 50 clients. We did an option writing program, and I hand-calculated returns every month, called the clients to report their returns. Now it's a push of the button. Yep. So technology has just totally changed that. It's all industry standard now. Uh, they can have faith in the numbers they receive. Do you think, and this is something we, we talk about a lot around here, but do you think the fact that news came on a delay, you know, a day later, you pick up the newspaper the day after, and then you're reading about something. Do you think that helped investor behavior at times as far as not immediately reacting? Because as you know, now it's every single second we're getting some bit of new information, or do you think it matter? Was it a different behavior being affected back then? I think it was different back then because then you could hear something early and have a leg up on others. And uh, sometimes that was used in a wrong way. Right. Uh, but, but some things you just knew before the news broke or yeah. before it became in a public, public media. Setting. That's true. You're, 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 you're chasing information rather than maybe reacting to it, which may not be any better than That's right. what it is today. At least so. now we all basically hear it all at the same time. Yeah. Now it's just a matter of making sense out of what you hear, but right. it's all out there. I think the one thing I would add here too is we're on our phones now. Every We can check our portfolio every minute if we wanted to on our phones. I mean, we're carrying many computers. We are. And, you know, you made the comment you were having to call investors and provide their return. Uh, what, quarterly, I think you said? I did monthly. Monthly. Whereas now it's it's every single day. Sure. I mean, I would hope some people do it every day instead of the every minute. But also, that's interesting. To speak back to that, we had paper contact management systems. Ah. So you hit write down your notes with a pen or a pencil. You mark your calendar. Yep. If someone asked you to call you on a certain date at a certain time, you had to set a calendar or an alarm. Yep. I mean, it was just so different than what we have today. Absolutely. Let's move to number two, which you labeled globalization. So what were your thoughts here? Gosh, we see it. We're feeling it. In all facets of our life, we feel and hear the globalization. And it happens in our investing. It happens in our personal lives, our social lives, it's everywhere. But, you know, we didn't really hear much about it. I didn't early on. Because okay. whenever I got in the business in 83, the bull market here took off in August of 82. Everybody was buying domestic stocks. And we didn't really talk about globalization or right. global stocks until Japan took off in the late 80s. And very few people really made money out of it. Sure. But the papers were full of invested in Japan and everybody did. And they just didn't go anywhere for 30 years. Right. That's kind of what happened. That's uh, interesting. But it took a while before that thought even came up. So it was a little bit it was a little bit late I think in coming. But I think that it also brought in some different regulations. You sure? Yeah. Uh, now to move money across the ocean, it's a different deal. Uh, you've got to know your customer. You and I both were trained with rule 405, know your customer. I think they've taken it to a whole new area now of know your customers before you can actually do some of these transactions. Yeah. That's good. It is. What was your thought? And I don't know when this was kind of coming about, but as markets started to get more global, were there more people apprehensive to going international because they were so used to being domestic? I mean, we still ran into that today a little bit, but now today your S&P 500 companies have so much exposure just based on sales and revenue they generate from international. They do. That they're domestic companies, but they, they have such an international presence. I just, I was curious if you've got much pushback of, no, I don't want to be in Japan. We anymore. got a lot of that, you know, and early on you had to reconcile the dollar difference. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and so if you have it in 
U.S. companies, that's taken care of itself. But I remember back, it wasn't that long ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago. Remember the name Charles Brandis? Yeah. Brandis Investment Brandis Partners. Investment Partners, yeah. Out of uh, La Jolla, California. Okay. He was here for a conference and we had him speak to clients and he said then, put all your money in emerging stocks and just don't, for, don't even think about it. Well, I'm not sure how that would have worked out. Yeah. It would have been good for a while. A little bit. But it would have been bad for a long while too, but. I think that the uh, globalization has given us more more opportunities to invest. The difficult part is to find the right ways and the right allocations to do it the right way. And we're going to get to this here at, I think, maybe number four. But before we move there, with with this globalization move that you saw in the early part of your career, was it still buying and selling individual stocks? Or were you starting to buy and sell some mutual funds at this point? It started off individual stocks, and that was another disadvantage that we all had. And then end up going to a fund. Yeah, you, international there's an fund. actively managed mutual fund and international actively managed funds back then. They were two, three percent expense ratios. Which we'll also get to the expenses here in a minute. But very yeah, expensive. Very expensive. And they didn't earn their keep. It's interesting. I just I thought that was uh, I I didn't know if it maybe was more individual stocks like like you said it, it was. It was so, then. Well, to to piggyback on that, number three, it was just. It sounds like overall the financial market deregulation. We've trended toward deregulation in a lot of the markets around the world, which has opened up new opportunities. But maybe give us some, a little bit of time on what what you saw around there and how it opened up opportunities. I, I actually came a little bit late in uh, May of '75. It's referred to in the business as May Day. That's when the commissions were deregulated. Okay. Because, I mean, there was a time there you could just name your price, whatever you could whatever. charge, whatever you get away with, you could charge. But so whenever I came on in, in the mid-80s, commissions were still so high. They were, uh, it was hard to get a commission down to 1% or 2% if it was a small trade. Now, larger trades you could, but smaller trades you couldn't. And when you say get it down, I think maybe help people understand because you're getting told you can only go so low, right? Right. And the normal commission, the stated commission might be 3%. Right. We're not going to charge someone 3% to just to write on a piece of paper to sell some stock. And so you always wanted to nego- negotiate it down, but they wouldn't let you go very far. Right. The firm is telling you. You can't do that. Yeah. So whenever it was, I still have the letter. In 1986 or seven, I wrote a letter to the president of Prudential Securities. I remember you telling us this. Complained <laughs> that oh, I need to bring the letter to show it to you. Yeah. Commissions were too high. His reply was, our clients did not perceive commissions to be too high. Not they weren't. They said they didn't perceive it. They weren't talking to my clients. They were awfully high, and I think that brought in some changes. Yeah. we saw. I showed you a chart earlier about how that made You're right. commissions really go down a lot. Right. But even then, we were dealing with some very large institutions in uh, early 90s, and you would charge maybe nickel a share, which people thought, oh, man, that was awesome. Nickel a share, yeah, I'll do that. Well, I mean— that's a lot of money. A lot of, yeah. It's a lot of money, you know, for the trades that are 10, 20,000 shares. But based on today, it is. Yeah. Back then, it was not. Uh, you have you had a comment or a note talking about, and we've discussed this in the past as well, but talking about how, given the commission, given the transaction charge, it was very transactional. And I, I'm not sure if we'll get into this a little later. I think we, we can probably tie this in on, on any of these topics, but... Clients, you make a comment, clients paid for the transaction, not advice. Yeah, that, back that then they did. That, that, yeah, that the was, advice was free. So so you may talk to a client once a year or a couple times a year or multiple times a week, because but they're just making trades. They're not providing right. planning or advice. And, and from an advisor's point of view, if the advice was don't do anything, you hang on to it, don't sell it, don't buy it, don't do anything, 
the advisor did not get paid for sometimes the best advice. Right. And so, but, but yeah, in the beginning you would pay for the transaction. The advice was free. Whereas now you pay for advice because transactions are free. Yeah. But now advice is so much better than what it was 40 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, now the advice that clients get, I mean, it's sound advice, I think, that doesn't always apply to every application, but it, it's sound advice people get now. But I think because of the deregulation, uh, we talked about how the know your customer rule, which really, in my opinion, is just a, you know, a minor league club compared to the fiduciary rule that we operate in. It, it is much better advice that's being given. I think it is. I made the comment to others that fiduciary rule or regulations, whatever, good advisors don't need those. It doesn't change. We're not going to, we're going to do what we would want have done to our families if something were to happen to us. And rules and regulations for good advisors don't really matter. Yeah. Now, if they do matter, then you need to think about your advisor. Right. But they really shouldn't matter. I like that. And I couldn't agree more. Number four, and man, this, golly, this is Wow. This is a big one. Changing investment strategies well, uh, or I, the evolution of investment strategies. Totally different. You know, so back then it was buy stocks. Someone give you a great story. Here's a reason you need to own Nestle. Here's a reason you need to own Pepsi, whatever. And so everybody had a portfolio of story stocks. There wasn't any thought, much thought given to structure the portfolio. There wasn't much thought given to sectors and allocations. It was just good stories made for a good stock. Okay. And it took us a while to, to live through that. But I mean, I remember being told about top drawer stocks. Okay. You know, IBM was top drawer stock. Just buy it, put it in your top drawer because everything was stock certificate then too, not electronic. You got the paper. So they're literally telling you put your certificate in the top drawer drawer and don't worry about it. And, um, uh, I got one of those, and a, a guy told me to buy Union Bank stock. Okay. Local bank. Yeah. So yeah. I put my good portion of my vast wealth, $3,200, into it, <laughs> and I put it in the top drawer. He told me, you buy it, and you put it in the top drawer, and if it doesn't work out, I'll give you your money back. I have not got my money back. I was going to ask, when, when's he bringing you your money? <laughs> I know it. I know it. But, I mean, it was just, then you'd just buy a stock, put it in there, and you'd hang on to it. But then we finally caught on. Yeah. You know, that, that you had to have some better diversification, which led to mutual funds, active management, high fees. That definitely probably led into just the acceleration of how popular mutual funds became, correct? I mean, they did were. you start, was there a period where you really started incorporating more mutual funds into a model or was it more just maybe you you had two or three mutual funds for a client? Does that make sense? Like, were you building out a model yet at that point? Or was it, you might use this fund or this separate manager and still piggy, you know, still pick some stocks around it. Oh, I hate to confess on something that's going to be on radio or someone can hear about, but I will. It's on record. It's on record. It's a safe place. That was a time when I thought I knew more than most people knew. Okay. So mutual funds, most people, the smart guys were doing mutual funds. (laughs) You know, they were really smart people. The real smart guys like me, well, we were way past that. And so, but we left that segment of our lives wishing we had done mutual funds because it's very hard to pick stocks. That's interesting. But I couldn't get, I had a hard time getting past the fees of a mutual fund, the the embedded expense ratio. So, so yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because those are still around a day. Tell me if you're going to compare, you know, like we said, average stock sell is is a 3% commission. What was that embedded expense of that fund. And again, they were structured, I mean, probably A shares at this time. 
So two, it's upfront charge. Two, two and a half percent. Yeah. Well, you had the five and a half percent or up whatever front, up front. Right? Yeah. And then that two percent expense ratio that Ongoing. paid you the twelve the B one fee, that one fourth of one percent. But it was just awfully expensive yeah. and I had a hard time getting past that. And and That's it was fair. on the whole bout of money when you know, we could buy a few stocks and not spend that much money. So anyway, that was my, but it took me a while to warm up to the idea. Uh, yeah. And finally in 1990 is when I woke up to managed accounts. I didn't wake up to mutual funds. I woke up to managed accounts. But the managed accounts, which real quickly here, a managed account is similar to a mutual fund, but you actually do as the investor, you have an ownership in the individual stocks that are with right. manager, correct? Yeah. If you're a separate account. So in a mutual fund, when the public wants to buy or sell at an opportune times, it's not going to impact you. Right. You have your own account. Okay. And the fees were normally lower in that in a, in a managed account. You made one other comment here about talking about how fees weren't necessarily an issue yet because most investors were making money. So oh, the bull market was crazy. Yeah. You know, from 82, we had a little hiccup in 84, but from 82 till 87, October of 87, Everybody was making money. Everybody's happy. They don't care what it yeah. costs. Yeah, it was. I mean, we were all wearing wide ties and suspenders and wide lapels, and the wider the tie would get, the wider the higher the, the market. The higher the market. Yeah, we did. There were some wide. I've seen some pictures of Crazy some wide stuff. ties. Crazy stuff. Okay, so George, anything else on just changing strategies? Things that top of mind to you there? Yes, because it became so much more top of mind in September of 2018 when I came to Full Sail Capital. Okay. Because whenever all this was happening with mutual funds, and then for me, it was separately managed accounts, all these different funds or managers had to find a way to differentiate themselves. So you'd see people start divvying up. Are they going to be a top-down or a bottom-up manager, uh, growth or value, GARP or technology, uh, you know, whatever. Everybody's trying to find a slice for them to live in but it, it took a while, I'm a slow learner, to realize it's hard for those guys to outperform their benchmarks. And I was lucky with some, but most not. And so all that desire to try to find a way to outperform the markets led to all these different ways of trying to create a basket right. of stocks that for most people did not get them where they wanted to go. It took them a while to, to learn that. Because most people do not have the patience to let it work for them long enough. Right. We'd been making money too fast, too quickly before. Yeah. Well, and something we also reference at times, I think Zach and I talked about it on our most recent episode, our Squared Away, but the SPIVA scorecard that comes out. And, and for those that don't know what that is, it's basically a, a report card for active managers. And it does not have good grades on it, if you will. Um, I believe that over a 20 and 30 year period now, active managers underperform. So they underperform their benchmarks. So if you take just the approach of I'm going to buy the benchmark or, or index appropriately, over 90% of the time, those active managers are underperforming over a long period of time. There's, there's some winners in there in the small cap space, like half the time on like a one year period. But when, when you extrapolate it out to a longer time horizon, to your point, the active management game is just very hard. It's so hard to do that. It, it's hard to find clients that are willing to sustain that investment for long periods of time whenever your style is not in favor, and everybody will face that. Whereas we've learned here, particularly, if we index to benchmarks, we don't have that issue. Yep. We're going to get right around the benchmark. Yep. Makes and, things a lot easier. And lastly, before we move on from there, I think the other thing that we, we hit on, and I know you like to talk about, is just the ability for us to go in and harvest some of those losses well, you can't do that in a mutual fund. You can't. You can have a down year. This is this is really frustrating. Back when I got in the business in 13, 14, you'd have these mutual funds. They would 
end of the year kind of underperform, but all of a sudden you you get your capital gain letter of what what the client's going to owe percentage wise of capital gains. It's like, wait, we didn't. My client didn't make any money, but now they've got to pay these capital gains because inside that fund they sold and rebalanced and everything. So it's just such a benefit now to have the ability to go in and harvest losses, which sounds so backwards, but it's such a benefit yeah. for our taxable accounts. It is. It is, but people, the markets would move and investors would get fearful or greedy. and They'd make a move that was counter to what you want to have done with your money. Yeah. And it forced it upon you. Yeah. yeah there's a better way. Okay. Number five, rising importance of emerging markets. And, and you hit on it earlier how, you know, mid, late 80s, international kind of came popular. So let's get in now, I guess, to maybe the 90s, late 90s. Emer yeah. When did emerging markets become something that was enticing? Emerging markets have been known to be commodities-based markets. Okay. So whenever the commodities were really going, whenever you saw silver running, energy running, say oil, oil and gas, oil more than gas, those sorts of things would lead to these uh, emerging markets. So you would want to, because most of the European markets, you're not going to get any oil and gas development out of there because individuals don't own the minerals. Right. Governments do. They're not going to spend the money to go find it. So it's a different deal in these other commodities markets. But then you saw it get divided even more into frontier markets. What do you mean by that? Well, now maybe they're untapped? identified. Yeah, there's even ETF for it now. Uh, maybe more than one. I'm sure the guys will tell us. But that's Africa, uh, Middle East. So uh, some of these untapped markets. Right. That, yeah. Just don't even know if you want to put money in there. Don't right. even know if you'd want to visit there. Yeah. But that's those markets. Turmoil. Okay. But there's probably money to be made there. And I think what's going on here, Tyler, is today we have a whole lot of money chasing many fewer investment opportunities in public yep. markets. Yep. You know, we did that study here at Full Sail. In 1998, there were about 8,800 companies on the domestic exchanges, and we estimated about $7 trillion in cash on the sidelines in 1998. Okay. And in 2018, 20 okay. years later, 20. this is work that we did here. We estimated about $32 trillion in cash on the sidelines and 4,400 public companies. So the Wilshire 5,000 does not have 5,000 companies. Right. And so you see that much money chasing fewer ideas, and they're looking everywhere for it. Everywhere. And I think one of the places they're looking is in some of these frontier markets or private markets, however you want to find them, where people are going to be making some money. So I think it has had a, a change, and there's going to be some big winners there. I was going to ask you about that. So you've seen creation and the emergence of emerging markets in, in the international yeah. side. And so I know we as an investment firm still believe that we need that international diversification, but it hasn't necessarily carried its weight the past couple years. Even more than that, probably. Probably. I mean, we could probably, yes, go back a little further. Eight or why, 10. Why is it still important to you that to have the international and emerging market exposure? Well, that's, that's a great question. Don't have a great answer for that. I mean, I've always wanted diversification. I've always had an international component. Maybe I was just one of those guys that bought in early. And really, as long as our investment team thinks it's a good idea, I'm going to think it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah I agree. I just was curious. I like the diversification of it. I do too. It's going to it's gonna have its day in the sun. Yep. It's going to take it a while. Yeah. Okay, well, we are at a good point right here. We're going we're gonna to cut off uh, the this first conversation. Stay tuned. The, the next episode will be part two of this conversation with George. George, thank you for joining me today. Uh, and we'll be back here shortly with the second part of this. So everyone have a great rest of the week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe to your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week.
All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.